and I were out shopping a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I think uh, both of us were struck by the fact that set against the backdrop of all of the Christmas, uh, Christmas buying and anticipation of this period, there's a lot of human heartache and sadness. And it just seems that this is a time when we see as much or more of that sort of thing than uh, in any other time of the year. And Carolyn made the comment, it seems that uh, it really is always winter and never Christmas. And I knew what she was referring to in the first of C.S. Lewis's Narnian Tales, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The uh, story is told of the four children, Susan and Lucy and Eustace and Peter, who had to leave London because of the uh, wartime bombings and went to uh, live with their uncle, Professor Kirk, who lived on, a, on an estate out in the country. And a lot of their time was spent in the uh, large uh, mansion in which he lived playing hide-and-seek. And one day Eustace uh, found an unused wardrobe and, and made his way through the back of the wardrobe into another world, the land of Narnia. And uh, when, he, when he got there, he met some of the talking animals, Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they told him about the eternal winter in Narnia. The whole land lay under a blanket of snow, and, and uh, it was freezing cold. And they told him that uh, Jadis, the white witch, had turned all of the uh, talking animals into stone, and her henchmen now were ogres and werewolves and woosies and centaurs and satyrs and the spirits of poisonous plants. And uh, it was always winter and never Christmas. And perhaps that's the way you feel this morning. You came in here with a heart that's burdened down. And though it's Christmas, it's not Christmas at all. If that's the case, I think we would do well to go back and reread the Christmas story and remind ourselves of the significance of it all. It's found in Luke, the second chapter. And I'd like to have you follow along with me as I read. Luke 2, verses 1 to 20. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Jesus also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. I don't know about you, but that, uh, that story evokes in me the warmest feelings. I can still remember sitting around the uh, Christmas tree with our pajamas on on Sunday morning. And it was the custom in our house that uh, before we could tear into the packages, my father read the Christmas story. And I was thinking this past week, though I've never made a conscious effort to memorize this, uh, this passage, I, I almost know it by heart all the way through because I heard it year after year read on that uh, special occasion. But uh, I have to confess that I, in those days, I think I uh, placed the Christmas story as Luke describes it here alongside all the other folklore that surrounds Christmas, Santa Claus and reindeer, sleighs, Rudolph, opening packages, Christmas trees, tinsel, lights, three wise men. And uh, it never really struck me that it really happened. Do you realize that in the midst of this tinsel Christmas, it really happened? It's not a folk tale. There was a real census. We know who this uh, man Caesar Augustus was. He was the successor to Julius Caesar. He ruled for 50 years. His name was Octavius. He, he changed it to Holy Caesar, August Caesar, Caesar, when he came to the throne. But he was a real man. His history is written up in uh, Roman history books. And uh, the governor of Syria that's mentioned here, Quirinius, was a real man. His story is found in Tacitus' history of, of the Roman Empire. His full name was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, which is probably why, why Luke calls him Quirinius. He, uh, he ruled over Syria at about 5 or 6 B.C., and uh, we know that this census was real. A man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson was uh, excavating in Turkey, in Ankara, Turkey, and he found evidence of a census, a Roman census, that was conducted in 20 A.D. And we know from Roman records that these, uh, these censuses were taken every 14 years. So there was one in 6 A.D., and there was another one in 8 B.C. It was promulgated in 8 B.C., but... It wasn't, uh, the census wasn't actually taken until a couple of years later. 
in uh, Palestine because that was one of the outlying provinces. But it really happened. There was a real census. And if you had read uh, Luke's account shortly after he wrote it and went down to Bethlehem and went to the county seat and opened up the record books, you would have found the name Joseph Bar Yaakov, Joseph, son of Jacob, and Miriam, Mary, and perhaps even Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, if uh, he recorded his name after the birth of the child. It would be right there in black and white. It really happened. It's not a folktale. And Mary and Joseph were real people. They really lived. Joseph was a contractor. And if he lived today, he would probably wear Pendleton shirts and Levi's everywhere he went and drive a pickup. Because all contractors drive a pickup as well as others. Can you imagine what inconvenience this would be? Actually, on one uh, looked at in one way, it was probably a, a good thing that they could get out of town. Uh, Mary was three months pregnant when Joseph married her. And as you know, the child was not Joseph's. It was God's child. The child was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but that's a little hard to explain to people. And uh, by this time, she was nine months pregnant, only married six months. And uh, vicious rumors were circulating circulating around Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town, and you know how gossip-filled small towns can be. Everyone knew. So in one sense, it was uh, probably good to get out of town, but in another sense, it was awfully inconvenient to have to load up the baby pen and the bags and the diapers and the infant seat and get all of that junk in their pickup and get ready to, to go to Bethlehem. I can remember those days we used to travel like Hannibal crossing the Alps. <laughs> Can't believe all the junk we carted around from one place to the next. And what an inconvenience. And they got about three or four miles out of town and Mary said, oh no, I forgot my hair curlers. And Joseph goes back and they get to Bethlehem and Mary says, Joseph, why in the world didn't you get reservations? They were real people. We, you know, because they lived back then, 1900 years ago, we tend to ascribe uh, mythical qualities to them, but they were real people, just like, just like you and me. Mary was very young, probably in her early teens, junior high age. And you can imagine what an inconvenience this would be for them. They were real people. Bethlehem was a real town. Just a little town few hundred people, sort of like Cuna, right on the edge of the wilderness. <laughs> it wasn't the end of the world, but you could see it from there. <laughs> just a little town, it, it was real, just as real as Cuna is, about 90 miles away from, from Nazareth, three days walking distance or so. It was predicted long before Jesus was born, at least 800 years before that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah said, Though you be small among the clans of Israel, out of you shall come one, O Bethlehem, whose going forth are from of old. It was widely known that Messiah would be born there. It's a real town. 
the stable was real. They uh, arrived in Bethlehem too late to find any room. They didn't have any relatives there. There was no place to stay. They went to one of the public houses, one of the inns. Those places in those days were taverns, basically, places to go and drink, to drink and find lodging. But uh, even there, there was no room. And so they, they stayed in a cave. It's generally agreed that the stable was a, was a cavern, part of an underground cavern. If you go to Bethlehem today and you visit the uh, church of the Nativity, they'll show you down underneath where those caverns are and what that stable looked like. That's probably one of the best attested ancient sites in all of Palestine. They were excavating there a number of years back and they discovered a 4th century church that was built by Helena, who was the mother of Constantine, to commemorate the birthplace of Jesus. And under that, they found a shrine to Adonis that dates in the early 2nd century, about 116, 117 A.D. They know it was the, the custom, the practice of Hadrian, who was the emperor at that time, to go all over Palestine building pagan shrines over Christian sacred sites, and they're almost certain that must be really the cave where Jesus was born. And Mary wrapped in clothes and put in a feed trough. That's what the manger was. Horse trough. It was real. That was a real place. You can visit it today. It's not a myth. And the shepherds were real. Uh, I like shepherds. Um, sometimes when I go up in the mountains, I look for bass sheep herders and talk to them because they're just interesting to talk to. I'm a shepherd. At least that's what I tell people when they ask me what I do. If they ask me and I say I'm a pastor, that always jams the conversation. Their response is always, oh. But I tell them I'm a sheep herder and that seems to work. But uh, in Jesus' day, shepherds were the lowest caste in society. The uh, rabbis uh, implored fathers to pray that their sons not become sailors, muleteers, camel drivers, or shepherds because they said their craft is the craft of robbers. These men were outlaws. They were thugs, hoodlums. And they were sleeping out at night with their flocks, sitting around the fire, passing a bottle around. Isn't it interesting that uh, when the angel made the announcement, he bypassed all of the great cultural centers of that day, Athens, Rome, Alexandria, and he appeared to a bunch of outlaws, lawless men. He didn't even appear at the temple to announce to the religious folk that the Messiah had come. It was to a bunch of lawless men. That ought to tell us something about God's heart and the sort of people that he's seeking to worship him. Those are the ones he loves. It's us sinners. And the baby was real, too. That's the amazing thing. The baby was real. Have you ever thought about that? God became a baby. 
If we were going to set out to save the world, we would organize armies and committees and all sorts of things, and God sends a baby to bring salvation to the world. And it was a real baby. As George MacDonald says, he came out of the everywhere into the here. He was God contracted to a span. The infinite became the infinitesimal. That was a real baby. That Mary had to take care of herself. It's very clear in the text that she was the one, pronoun is feminine, she was the one who wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger. Makes me wonder where Joseph was. Typical male action. She had to take care of the baby. And, and do you realize what a, what a slender thread the life of that baby hung on at that moment? That baby was real. God didn't descend as a mature man. He had to go through the whole process of, of conception, gestation, and birth. It's incredible. That's an incredible thing that we Christians believe, that God actually became a baby. He was a real man. Holy God, but holy man. If you'll permit me another reference to uh, the Narnian tales Josh and I have been reading over the last few months in The Horse and His Boy. And we read the other night the account of the time when Aslan, who is the uh, figure of Christ in these in his uh, novels when, when Aslan was revealed to the uh, to the horse Bree is his name Bree said Erebus Erebus was the young lady who had been writing I've been wanting to ask you something for a long time why do you keep on swearing by the lion and by the lion's mane I thought you hated lions so I do answered Bree but when I speak of the lion of course I mean Aslan the great deliverer of Narnia who drove away the witch from the winter all Narnians swear by him. But is he a lion? Oh, no, of course not, said Bree in a rather shocked voice. All the stories about him in Tashpan say he is, replied Erebus. But if he isn't a lion, why do you call him a lion? Well, you'd hardly understand at your age, said Bree. And I was only a little foal when I left, so I don't quite fully understand it myself. Bree was standing with his back to the green wall while he said this, and the other two were facing him. He was talking in rather a superior tone with his eyes half shut. That was why he didn't see the changed expression in the faces of Wynne and Erebus. Wynne was the other, uh, the mayor who accompanied them. They had good reason to have open mouths and staring eyes because while Bree spoke, they saw an enormous lion leap up from the outside and balance itself on the top of the green wall, only it was a brighter yellow, and it was bigger and more beautiful and more alarming than any lion they had ever seen. And at once it jumped down inside the wall and began approaching Bree from behind. It made no noise at all, and when and Erebus couldn't make any noise themselves, no more than if they were frozen. No doubt, continued Bree, when they speak of him as a lion, they only mean he's as strong as a lion, or, to our enemies of course, as fierce as a lion. Or something of that kind. Even a little girl like you, Erebus, must see that it would be quite absurd to suppose he is a real lion. Indeed, it would be disrespectful. If he was a lion, he would have to be a beast, just like the rest of us. Why? And here Bree began to laugh. If he was a lion, he'd have four paws and a tail and whiskers. Oh, help! For just as he said the word whiskers, one of Aslan's had actually tickled his ear. 
Bree shot away like an arrow to the other side of the enclosure and there turned. The wall was too high for him to jump and he could fly no further. Erebus and Wynne both started back. There was about a second of, in, of intense silence. Then Aslan lifted his head and said, Bree, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Nearer still, my son, do not dare. Do not dare. Touch me. Smell me. Here are my paws. Here is my tail. These are my whiskers. I am a true beast. Aslan, said Bree in a shaken voice, I'm afraid I must be rather a fool. Happy is the horse who knows that while he is still young, or the human either. Jesus was a real person, a real baby. He actually lived. And finally, the salvation that he brought about is a real salvation. It's not a myth. It's not like the sort of thing we talk about at Christmas, joy to the world, short-lived joy that doesn't, doesn't last. It's a real salvation. When the angels made their announcement to the shepherds, they said, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all people. And the good news is this. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. That's the good news. A Savior has come. Messiah is here. Back in Genesis 3, we can read the story of the fall, and the impression that we get from that story is that the fall was a fall indeed. When man fell, he really fell hard. He lost everything. But in the same breath in which the Lord announces the fall, he says to the serpent, The seed of the woman will crush your head, but in so doing, he'll bruise his heel. It's a picture of a man stamping on the head of a serpent and inflicting a mortal wound on the serpent, but at the same time, injuring himself. It's a beautiful picture of the cross. And uh, that's what Adam and Eve hoped for, the coming of that man who would crush the serpent and set things right. Eve thought it would be her first son, King. She said, I have gotten the man that is the promised man. But as you know, he wasn't the solution. He was just part of the problem. He crushed his own brother. So the human race had to wait. History ground on. Noah was told that the man would come through his son, Shem. In other words, the man would be a Semite. He would be a Jew or an Arab or an Assyrian or a Babylonian or one of those Semitic people. And then later Abraham was told that he would be the one through whom the line would come and we knew then it was a Jew. And that promise was restated to his son Isaac and then to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and one of them was Judah. And we're told that the man would come through the tribe of Judah. And the human race waited until David. And to David it was promised that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And that's how we get the name Messiah. The Hebrew word Mashiach means an anointed one, an anointed king. And the human race waited and waited and waited until this baby was born in Bethlehem. And that was the Savior who was the Messiah, the Lord himself, God 
become men. And that's why we sing in the Christmas carol, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. When that baby was born in Jerusalem, that, or in Bethlehem, that was the sign that God had brought salvation to the world. It was a complete and thorough salvation. It was a real salvation. For, for me, Christmas is, is almost a parable. I, uh, I can remember as a, as a child how excited I got before opening the presents. You didn't sleep well the night before, and you know that sort of grainy feeling in your eyes when you get up in the morning, and you're tired, but your adrenaline is flowing, and you're excited, and you tear into those packages, and you play with them through the whole day. And then at the end of the whole day, you look back, and the whole thing's empty. And you have to wait until next year when Christmas rolls around. And to me, that's parabolic of life. That's the way life is. You spend your whole life waiting for something, anticipating something, knowing that the next thing is going to satisfy me, the next raise that I get, or the next uh, promotion that I receive, or getting married, or having children, or having grandchildren. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we get what we want, and we don't want anything we have after we get it. That's what Thoreau called destination sickness. You've arrived, and you have no place else to go, and you're just empty. That's why I say Christmas is, is a parable. That's, that's the way life is. There's nothing real there, nothing that lasts. But there is something real that happened on Christmas Day. The Lord Jesus was born. God became flesh. He was Emmanuel. God with us, and that lasts. That's real. That's the only thing real about Christmas. And that's the one to cling to during this time. You say, well, that's kind of childish. Yeah, that, that's the sort of thing we did when we were children. And in some sense, it is childish because we only see who Jesus is through the eyes of a child. We have to believe him and trust him and count on him. Stop believing that somehow the right kind of job or enough money or a position or even a healed marriage or children or anything else will ultimately satisfy us. It will not. The more we get, the more we want. But there's one person who satisfies. There's one person who brings peace on earth. That was the message that the, uh, that the angels brought. Glory to God in the highest. Uh, highest is not an adjective modifying glory. It's not highest glory to God. It's glory to God in heaven and on earth peace. That's a remarkable thing. It's a down-to-earth peace. It's a real peace that God can give you right in the midst of your circumstances. And that's what frees us from our fear and our feelings of frustration and all the hurt and pain that we experience during this time. It really happened. It really happened. It's not a myth. On that day, 1,900 years ago, God himself became a baby, and that child is the Savior, the Messiah of the world. When my two oldest boys were young, one of them, I can't remember which, was afraid of Santa Claus. We never could get him to talk to Santa Claus. Every time he saw him, he would hide his face. Didn't want anything to do with Santa Claus. And... Uh, one day we were talking to him about it as he was getting ready to go to bed. We were going to pray with him. And he, 
he said, well, he said, it's all right. Jesus will save me from Santa Claus. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Let's don't any of us forget it. There's only one person that can save us from Santa Claus, and that's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please deliver us from this delusion that we so easily uh, maintain that somehow one more thing is going to satisfy us. Something that someone will do. Something we receive other than the life of God. We, uh, we thank you this morning for coming, for being our Savior. And we ask for that same childlike faith that we used to have that enable us to believe that you really Thank you that you did. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.